Hello, it's Peter Wright and Kathleen Beauvais in Ontario, Canada, with episode number 120 of The Yacking Show. This is the show for awakening you to new perspectives for the changing world we find ourselves in. And we know that it's changing a lot right at the moment. As always, we have interesting guests on our show. Today's is certainly no exception. But it's Kathleen's job to interview, uh, in, sorry, introduce our guest. She does it so much better than I do. So my first job is to welcome co-host Kathleen Beauvais from Waterloo. How are you today, Kathleen? I'm doing well, Peter. Thank you so much. The sun is shining and it's absolutely lovely. And uh, thank you all so very much for tuning into our show. We so appreciate you and we love reading your comments. So please keep those coming. And if anyone out there is interested in being a guest on our show, please don't hesitate to reach out to either Peter or myself. And as Peter mentioned, we do have another special guest with us today. Her name is Gabrielle Ferguson. Welcome, Gabrielle. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. Now, you are the Director of Leadership Programs at the Rural Ontario Institute. Can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and specifically how you transitioned from the private sector to the public sector? Well, um, first of all, I am a graduate of the University of Guelph in Ontario, and my degree there was in environmental biology, and I found myself after university taking on a job shortly after that with Cargill, and of course Cargill is, uh, you know, a farm input company, and my job there was to do agronomic consulting with farmers. And uh, really enjoyed that job, learned a lot at it, but realized also that my degree allowed me to have, uh, you know, even a broader perspective. And so looked towards the government at that time was hiring and moved in as a soil and crop advisor. And so that gave me a lot more perspective across the province in terms of soils and crops. And that's what ended up in the government. But shortly after that, I quit the government, uh, ran into my own private consulting business that I did directly with farmers and left that and went back to the government again as a research program advisor and went, worked on agro-environmental projects. And just in the last three years, I said, well, you know, I've been in private and I've been in government a couple of times. Maybe now it's time to go to the nonprofit sector. And I've always been interested in leadership, always interested in leadership in terms of rural communities and the farm community. Uh, and, you know, seeing how that larger voice can be helpful. So that's what I did. I headed off three years ago and ended up in the private sector, uh, in the nonprofit sector. And so that's where I am now. That's a bit of the journey. Wow, quite, quite a journey, but in what you're doing now, which we're going to get into a little more as we go on, <clears throat> excuse me, you've at least got a grounding in both the private and public side and the practical and academic, and now the non-profit, that's great. Before I ask you something specific about the program, you mentioned Cargill, and I know, having been a farmer for a lot of my life, I, I seem to remember recalling that Cargill is the largest privately owned company in the world. Is that still correct? certainly was. I can't tell you for sure whether or not that is the case because mm -hmm. there's been a lot of development since I left there. But absolutely, privately owned, uh, very much about, you know, grooming uh, 
leaders, grooming people mm -hmm. uh, that can rise and shine to their organization. Very young, very young uh, people you'll find in their management sector with Gill. And it's had a lot of changes over the years. Mm -hmm. all, a lot of those large ag companies have had a lot of change. Right, right. So tell our audience a little bit more about the leadership program, which is your what you're working on right now. Right. So as a leadership programs director, uh, I look after a number of leadership programs. And uh, one, of course, is our flagship uh, leadership program. And in that is it's an 18 month executive leadership program. And it's for those people, you know, that really want to make a difference in the ag sector. It's called the Advanced Agricultural Leadership Program. And so we have, uh, you know, up to 30 people can be in a class and they apply to it. They're given a, uh, an interview process. And what happens there is they've got seven seminars around the province of Ontario where they learn, obviously, leadership techniques, but then also do ag sector tours and meet government officials and the latest and greatest technologies and those sorts of and then they do a North American study tour and they do an international study tour so it's a global perspective to the local perspective so that's been going for 37 years since 1984 wow. and we're actually recruiting now for a class so we've got so with this class will be up over 500 alumni there and if you take a look at across you know top leaders certainly right now I was doing a count actually just before this year, like I can think of 33 major, you know, farm organization businesses where the alumni are leading in those organizations. So usually you'll bang into someone that's an alumni if there's things happening in the ag sector, whether they're on wow. a farm or an industry or in an organization. So that's the one, and we can talk more about it later, but the other one is called Young Rural Changemakers, and it's for 18 to 29-year-olds. And this one here is about rural community development. We've always, the Rural Ontario Institute has always worked with youth on entrepreneurial programs, on community enhancements. But this one we piloted last year based on some research that was done, you know, through the University of Guelph and has been done through different research facilities on youth throughout the world. And what it says in that research is that if you engage youth in their communities, they're more likely to stay in their community. Mm -hmm. And of course, as we know, rural communities uh, have some difficulty with getting their youth to stay because what happens is they go to the bright lights, right? Just like we hear in all the country songs, right? They head to the bright lights and that's, and that's where they see the opportunity. Mm -hmm. So we started this pilot program and we did it in co during COVID, and uh, it was about 12 months or so. And what happened, they had seven webinars on rural community development. So how to engage the community, inspire that community, and how to um, enable, act with that community. When they came into the program, 45% of them said, I, you know, I'm probably going to stay in my rural community I think there's some opportunities there. And at the end of the program, 72% of them said, I'm engaged with my community. There's opportunities for me. And I'm going to stay here, wow. which is fantastic in Very that good. age group. So 
we're thrilled with those results. It was a third party evaluator we had mm -hmm. come in because it was a pilot program. Um, and, and, you know, there was 93% of, of the participants said that they felt they had the skills to engage their communities. And so what was their purpose? They learned about rural community development. They had discovery sessions. So they facilitated discovery sessions with people in their communities to define what were their issues, what were their major issues. And then they had action labs. And the action labs prioritized the issues and said, well, what are we gonna do about it? Where's the resources? Where's the people? Where's the energy? And it was amazing, amazing. Things like rural and remote housing, food security, you know, activities for youth, and on and on. Different issues of, of rural communities. It's quite powerful. Very good. I think you've probably answered this in part already, especially when, it, when you're talking about the younger demographic, the 18s to the 29-year-olds. But why is it so important to develop leadership specifically in the rural sector? I'm, I'm glad you added rural. I'm glad you added rural to that because it's always important to have leadership. You know, we need, we need people that are visionary. We need people that um, can handle change. But in rural communities, um, you think of population, just simple population, right? There are not as many voices in the rural communities as there are in urban communities. And when you think in terms of votes or opinions or having your voice heard, being able to do that in a way that inspires, that's collaborative, and that gets heard is incredibly important when you don't have the representation in numbers. Mm -hmm. And when because you don't have the representations in numbers as well, there may be people who don't understand your particular story that well. So being able to tell your story is also important. So when we think about leadership, right, it is inspiring and it's being open-minded and it's, you know, it's, 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 it's being able to handle the change and that changes some communities coming fast and others not so. And why is that? Right? So mm -hmm. the, the leadership is, it, it's for different reasons in rural communities, but it's the same leadership. We need the same leadership as we have globally in rural communities. Right, right. Gabriel, I, I've believed since the advent of high-speed, and I'm, I've lived in a rural area and a, or on a farm for almost all my life. But when, with the advancement of high-speed internet and fiber optics and, and the expansion of this to rural communities, I felt for a number of years this could be the salvation of small towns, villages, and uh, rural communities. A lot of people said, no, you're nuts, you're crazy. You know, high, high, people who use tech want to be in the cities. I said, I'm not so sure. And I think this whole pandemic virus, whatever you want to call it, is is partially proving me correct in that suddenly people are realizing they don't have to work in the city. They've had the experience of not having to commute 
you know, for two hours a day or whatever. And they've also had the experience of their kids can play outside, which they couldn't do if they were living in a condo in the middle of Toronto. So put all that together. Do you see accelerated by the virus? Do you see this trend continuing? And then it could be the resurrection of small towns and villages in, in Ontario and worldwide. Well, uh, lots of pieces to that puzzle. So mm -hmm. I would say absolutely good broadband. So let's just start with the technology, the availability sure. of the technology, if a rural community has that. And more and more are getting it. But you know what? There's still enough that don't have it. Mm -hmm. that it, it there is a deficit there, and we need to work on it. But let's assume for a moment that you've got it. Well, then your choices, as you say, Peter, are, are much greater than without it. And you can connect well. And it means that you can work from a distance, as you say. And that gives lots of flexibility. Some people don't want to do that. You know, Not we sure. found in COVID, I don't know about yourself, some people like to go to the office. Even though they can mm -hmm. work from home, they want to be in the office. It's quiet. They can focus. Others want to be out. But a big part in terms of uh, rural communities is having that choice. And being able to have that choice, as you say, means each family, each person can determine how they want to show up. And I think COVID has taught that to us mm -hmm. in, in phase. It's great. And we're getting better right at these virtual conversations, mm -hmm. getting more comfortable with them. And wow, the speed with which we've been able to adapt this technology is fantastic. So I keep calling it the great um, equalizer in the generations. COVID has, has helped that to happen. It's sure. brought the generations a lot closer. We now understand the value of both virtual and in-person, and hopefully we can keep doing that. The one thing, though, that you, you were said there towards the end of that question was this idea of um, it well you know, it will increase the rate at which change happens in community, these rural communities, things like that. What we realize at the Rural Ontario Institute is that these communities are very different. So, for example, the Rural Change Makers Program. We had one participant that's from Brown, Brent County, right? We had another one from Kirkland Lake, right? We had another one near the Ottawa area. Brand County, the pace at which newcomers are coming in and the change is just, mm -hmm. it's phenomenal, right? Like the, the, the life is changing month by month before their eyes. Mm -hmm. So growth is not an issue. <laughs> in, in many of these rural communities, growth is not an issue. And we see this as we, you know, as we look at information, the mm -hmm. statistics that come in that as we inform leaders, um, we're, we're seeing that the number of rural communities is changing by definition in population, you know, every, every year as, as we move with these populations. And then we've got other communities, as you say, that they, they seem stagnant, like they're, they're not growing, and you wonder why that is. So being able to connect those communities through the technology you're talking about so what we do is, is we say we build, inform, and connect leaders so they can mm -hmm. collaborate. And what we do is take these Stats Canada data, take the information about these rural communities, and help communities to find people that are like them. And why is it that this community is thriving and this community not so much? 
And can they trade ideas and accelerate the solutions, the mm -hmm. opportunities? Mm -hmm. And that, to me, is a lot of that equalizer as well, right? If you have the technology, then you can connect thousands of miles apart, right? Sure. You can, that. You can go to different countries the same. So, yeah. I, yeah, I, and our rural communities are global. Like, we talk about local food and all that. But a lot of our niche markets, our small businesses come from rural communities, which are globally based. All right. They need, they need that network you're talking about. Mm -hmm. so, Hard to say. When you ask me, is it going to change? It depends on the kind of community. <laughs> yeah, of course. So, so you believe that the rural sectors are growing exponentially. They're, they're, they're thriving, in fact, and there's, there's a lot of growth there. Is that particularly so in the technology area, and I'm not just talking about broadband internet, I'm talking the use of, of technology such as apps and, and you know, software, like sophisticated software. Um, are, are you finding growth in that area? Um, there is tremendous growth in what I call ingenuity. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and ingenuity usually involves some type of technology and it involves technology used in a way in which it wasn't used before. Mm -hmm. So we tend in rural communities to be very influenced by the ag sector and influenced by small businesses. So what I would call do it, do it yourselfers a lot of times. And so this idea of trading ideas and problem solving in a way that it, a lens through which it might not have looked at before is important. And it's what drives technology for us. So for example, you know, global information system, right? So, you know, GIS, everyone's using it. We're going to, you know, it's going to be uh, the next technology that's out there. Well, how, how do we actually apply that? How does it become an economic driver? And how does it become a social driver or an environmental driver? And these are the things that we're seeing that are based around data sharing, mm -hmm. okay? information sharing, information ownership. And those are big issues for rural communities in the ag sector because being able to understand data and to use it in a place-based fashion means that we can um, solve a lot of problems by using the continuum across a value chain. And I'll mm -hmm. just explain that for a moment. So let's say you're a chicken farmer, you know, out in Essex County and, uh, you know, you produce this product and it has to make sure that it's traced right from the barn all the way to the table. And along that whole value chain, there's the trucker, right? And there's the feed supplier and there's the processor and there's the grocer and there's the rest of this. Understanding where efficiencies are along that system, along that value chain, allows you to be more productive. It allows you to be safer it allows you to, in some ways, forecast your future, right? Mm -hmm. So what do we need to do in the future? What is the consumer saying? What are they purchasing? How do they like? Do they like free range this? Do they like organic that? Do they? 
So that information will drive us. So technology, as certainly as, as we see it in the rural communities, is driven by the need to solve problems, right? Technology is always driven by that. And the need to solve those problems is based on access to information because you have to identify what, what the problem is, right? We're past the stage of saying, oh, we need to dig a hole. How do we do that faster, quicker? Now we want to know, you know, okay, we're going to dig the hole. How does it affect the water system below it? How, at what rate is it going to go? Whereabouts on that farm? And so those are the kinds of things that are happening. In terms of other technologies, I mean, it is it's just amazing. Just down the road from me, okay, I live on a farm, southwestern Ontario, down the road from me, of course, they are now in the process of using the small tractor. So we've seen over years and years the equipment getting bigger and faster and larger. Now we're seeing modular little of equipment that go out to the farm and do a job and come back in. They've got a low footprint, very little impact. They only do the job they need to do and they're all driven off of the satellites. And it's just, it's fascinating to see it, you know, and that takes us a, a step above the robotic uh, things that we're seeing on mm -hmm. farms. And of course, we've had those for a number of years now. Right. Mm. Talking about robotics on farms, you know, we've seen in my lifetime, uh, the numbers of people employed in farming in, in the Western world. You know, I, I come from Africa where it was a little different, but certainly in the Western world, the numbers of people employed on farms has dropped dramatically, been reduced dramatically. And farmers, I, I believe, have used technology to fill that gap. If they can't get people to work for them, they have to do something else. So technology has, has helped. But it's, it's alarming that how few people are now living on farms compared to the numbers that were in the past. Do you think that trends are going to continue so that the people in the rural areas will be in villages and towns rather than on farms? Or do you think we've reached a plateau? I don't think we've reached a plateau. But the plateau I'm talking about isn't a plateau. And so mm -hmm. I'm going to explain a little bit. Sure. Uh, little bit what I'm what's going through my head at that time and you know we try to envision the future I think it's an important part of leadership and it's an important part of trying to figure out where do you need to be out there so there is a difference to me uh, about people on farms and people in the agri-food sector sure so we are desperate for more people in the agri-food sector there's right. jobs everywhere, the whole way along that value chain I just talked about, mm -hmm. and finding people with a multitude of skills along that, everywhere from finance and insurance to media, the whole way from soil and agronomy and uh, GIS that I just talked about and marketing and et cetera, et cetera, along that value chain, is really important to tell people what's needed because what happens then, once they understand that the agri-food sector has all these opportunities, it means we're more likelihood to be able to engage them in the rural community problem mm -hmm. part of that and the farm part of that. 
well, I'm not sure that I want to live on a farm because I'm not sure if I can go to the theater and such and such a night, or I don't know if I'll, there'll be any neighbors or people to talk to. So once we start to get this connectivity, and once you realize that you can live on a farm and be a global marketer, or you can be a media, or you can be whatever, that, an engineer, et cetera, now all of a sudden we have people returning to those rural communities, returning to farms. So that is slightly different than what you may also be thinking about, and that's farm ownership, and that's mm -hmm. the idea of you know a size of a farm and who owns the land and what does the landscape look out look like out there. I think what we'll see is a greater diversity of farms. And Peter, you know from your background that if you go to countries around the world, farming looks very different. Oh, yeah. Very, very different. Mm -hmm. Well, why can't that happen in Canada? And I'm seeing it happen in Ontario, right? So you see the 25-acre farm and you see the 25,000-acre farm. The thing that's very interesting about Ontario in particular, I mean, we can talk about Canada, we can talk about the globe, but if we just look at Ontario for a moment, a large farm in Ontario is actually quite a bit smaller <laughs> than large farms in, let's say, the United States or in other countries around the world. So our large to small farm difference is narrower than other maybe places in Canada, places in the United States or North America, let's say. But within that continuum to large to small, there's great diversity. What I see is an increased polarization. Mm -hmm. right? So urban agriculture, small patches, 25 acres, and then, you know, our 25,000, our, you know, acre farms and I realize I'm talking acres and we people <laughs> in hectares as well in Canada we flip back and forth right between the sure. so I you know the the landscape I mean in my lifetime the landscape when I look out my windows I see less windrows I see larger fields I see less farmer owners mm -hmm. um but I see more people asking questions about their food. I see more people engaged along that value chain. And I see an opportunity, I'm thinking through the program, I look after Advanced Agricultural Leadership Program, also through Rural Changemakers, I see an opportunity to bring together, and this is what we try to do, connect leaders around shared values, around how do we solve a problem that we each individually think is a problem? And if we got together, it could actually be a pile of solutions. And, you know, people, people will often, you know, have an argument, let's say, about this type of food production system and this one or this type of living space and this one. And I always like to say, well, you know, you could have any of these like we got an app for that you need low in you know you need low cost food that's healthy we got an app for that you want an organic produced food and we got an app for that you want like we've got apps that we can do so much in ontario let alone canada that um 
you know, really it's about the mindset. Mm -hmm. It's about Mm -hmm. figuring out how do we make this happen as opposed to what do we disagree about or who's right and who's wrong. Get beyond who's right and who's wrong and talk about that continuum of amazing things we can do together. And I I realize it sounds Pollyanna, but you know what? It's real. Mm -hmm. It is real. So it sounds it sounds very much that the rural sector is embracing technology because they've really had to in order to sustain some growth. But are you seeing any resistance to that at all? You know that because when you think of farming, you think of tradition and and you know just. But it, are you seeing change? Or, yeah. Pardon me. Yeah, change is tough. Change is tough, mm-hmm. and and uh, I think we all struggle with it depending on the level of change or the speed that it's happening right and who it's happening to mm-hmm. right some for some of us we love change as long as we're feel like we're in control of it and, and life is good but watch change happen to your kids or your parents uh, and, and you might not be as comfortable with that because <laughs> you don't have as much control over what's happening and so in in rural communities uh, it's the same as as anywhere Except that, I believe for those individuals who have been in the same place their whole life, and so these are people who have grown up in the same house, it actually could have been their parents or grandparents' house. I, I just did a renovation this year, and we moved into my husband, the, the house that my husband's grandfather built. Wow. Okay, so, so this is how close... We, and it, you know, it's three kilometers down the road, right? So when we sell and move a place, we're going three kilometers down the road. So tradition, as you say, Kathleen, and um, that watching the world change before your eyes can be intimidating. Mm-hmm. So you can embrace that or you, it can bring fear. I mean, when I see a windrow go out and the trees come down and I, I see old houses come down and new ones go up. Um, part of me is sad and part of me is excited. <laughs> and, that, and it feels like a split personality sometimes. And so technology and change are closely linked, but the emotions that go with that sometimes are very illogical. <laughs> Uh, and so um, everybody wants the latest and greatest for, from a convenience standpoint and, and a health standpoint and looking after the environment, but not everyone is comfortable with the pace of change and not everyone agrees with what's right, which goes back to my last comments, right? Yep, so absolutely. what I think is right, yeah, what I think is right for my community might not be what you think is right. That's what I think is fascinating, again, about a rural change maker, right? Engaging the community first about what are our issues? Are the issues the rate of change and the people that are coming in? Or are our issues the fact that nobody will come here and we can't, we can't keep a grocery store, we can't keep a church, we can't keep a bank? Like, on which side of of that scale are you as a rural community? And so the technological solutions that you need might be different. Your your 
technology that you need is remote health. You need to be able to do health care from a distance because you can't get to a hospital or a doctor. It's not going to happen, right? You can't bring that services in. The service has to come to you. Transportation is another one. A lot of our uh, businesses are growing on the edges of larger communities. If you're out in the rural community, you've got no transportation, you don't have a vehicle or a driver's license or you're young, how do you get in there? Mm -hmm. So those technologies, the, the type of infrastructure and technology that's needed is, is that infrastructure connection. Where others, where things are moving and shaking, there's technologies, might be about drone, you know, drone delivery, sure. right? Um, getting their things to market. A lot of it is about this getting items to market and about getting services back to the rural communities, and that's the technology that's needed. Uh, like, think about electric cars, right? Electric right. cars until we get those stations. Mm -hmm. Not going to happen. We, we're run, rapidly running out of time, but I've got a, a question that because you're in leadership, because you've had such a, uh, a wealth of experience in different sectors, I've got to ask you my favorite question. So, so Gabrielle, in your experience, and especially working with so many leaders and, and rising leaders coming up, what do you believe is the single biggest characteristic that distinguishes between the successful and those that are no better than average? Is there one big thing in your experience? Spent lots and lots of time thinking about this. You know, people will ask me, what kind of people join a leadership program and what makes them successful and what do you do at the end of it and how do you make, in other words, how do you have one of the longest running leadership programs with people that are top leaders coming out of it? Well, I'll tell you, to me, what makes a good leader, I think it's, it's pretty simple and it's the courage to act. It truly is. Mm. It truly is. You can know everything. You can be, you can read, you can think. You can talk, you can collaborate, but if you don't act, if you mm -hmm. don't do it, as they say, just do it, you know, all, the, all these things. Right. Yeah. Yep. Courage, the courage to act <laughs> because we each, each of us have the power, right? Yes. To make the change. And why does someone, why does someone do it? And why does someone not do it? it it's that courage is that belief. And how do you get it? You get connected, you get the skills and you get connected and you get informed, that's what gives you the courage to act. That's what, that's what helps you be a leader. Well, wonderful. Yeah, this has been wonderful and we are out of time, but can you tell our audience, uh, please, how they can get a hold of you? Oh, absolutely. It'd be my pleasure. Uh, so you can get us at the ruralontarioinstitute.ca. So that's easily, you know, Google ROI, Rural Ontario Institute. And if they want to connect with me personally, I'd, be happy to get an email, uh, gferguson at ruralontarioinstitute.ca. Wonderful. We'll put that on there. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> it's been ours, uh, Gabrielle Ferguson. Thank you so much for tuning in. And uh, thank you all so very much for joining us. We so appreciate your comments. So do please keep those coming. And if anyone out there is interested in being a guest on our show, please don't hesitate to reach out to either Peter or myself. And until next time, everyone, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.